1: After 18 months of investigating the murders of Becky and Vicki Friedley and John Hayward, and the convictions against Robert Pape and Christian Smith, today is the day where I sum up the case in a tight package. One of the intents of this episode is to create an easily digestible summary of the case and what went wrong. I'm doing this to both wrap up a year and a half's worth of work to our usual audience, but also to have a single place A link to be shared with anyone and everyone who has an interest in this case. If you're one of those people who hasn't been listening to this entire season, first of all, thank you for listening. And secondly, know that all of the elements that I'm going to discuss in this episode have been covered in depth throughout the season. And if you want to go back and get all of the nitty gritty details, you're welcome to do that. And with that being said, welcome everyone. This is season 12, episode 62
0: Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block.
1: Again, if you've been listening to the season all along, this will all be review, but I'm certain there's going to be a lot of new people listening, so let me break this down. Around 9.45 p.m. on Sunday, September 17th in 2006, multiple residents of the unincorporated community of Pinion Pines, California called 911 and direct to the fire department. A two-story house on the north side of Alpine Drive was on fire. The neighborhood was dark and quiet, without streetlights. The roads are rough and dirt, and there are only five houses on Alpine Drive, so vehicle traffic was non-existent. In fact, since the Friedley House was positioned directly between Chillin Heights Drive and Palm Canyon Drive, the two roads that headed south out of the neighborhood, there was literally no reason for any car to ever drive past their house. Because the area was so isolated and because the sun had set hours before and Moonrise was still several hours away, the flames coming from the second story of the house stood out like a sore thumb to the neighbors, like someone lighting a match in a completely dark room. Neighbors arrived to find what seemed like a scene out of a horror movie. There were six cars in the driveway and around the house, making it very clear that the home was occupied. Neighbor Tim Summerly yelled into the house through an open garage door to see if anyone was inside. No one answered. But then something to his right caught his attention. More flames. He looked to his right, to the north, and saw a body burning in a wheelbarrow about 70 feet away from the house. By the next afternoon, firefighters had found all three residents of the house on Alpine Drive. The house had burned completely to the ground, but the charred remains of Vicki Friedley and her longtime live-in boyfriend, John Hayward, were discovered in the rubble. Positive identification took weeks, but ultimately it was determined that it was Vicki's teenage daughter, Becky, who was found burning in the wheelbarrow. Further investigation revealed that all three victims were likely deceased prior to the fires being started. Vicky had been shot in the head at point-blank range by either a 40 caliber or a 10-millimeter pistol. And John had been shot twice in the neck and chest by a 12-gauge shotgun. And teenage Becky's body showed no obvious indications of cause of death. Much of her torso had burned away, but what remained left the medical examiner with no clues as to how she died. No bullet holes, no skull fractures, no broken hyoid, nothing. Based on the circumstances of her death, it was ruled a homicide, but with no cause of death known. That was the scene. A total family annihilation. Mom and stepdad shot and killed inside the house, and then the house set on fire with an accelerant, and the teenage daughter killed and her body lit on fire in a wheelbarrow outside of the house. A brutal triple homicide and arson in a remote village 30 minutes up the mountain from the Coachella Valley. Now there are people who will tell you that the police got it right, that this case isn't complicated at all, that it's obvious who murdered John, Vicky and Becky. But I'm here to tell you that that is not true at all. It took the investigators, the actual police investigators from the Riverside County Sheriff's Department, 10 years to make the final arrest in this case. A decade. So it wasn't obvious to them. And even with the arrest, the case that was built against Robert Pape and Christian Smith was entirely circumstantial. We've heard directly from a juror who sat through the six-week trial. She told us that on day one of deliberations, after hearing all the evidence, the jury was split right down the middle. Six voting guilty and six voting not guilty. It took 10 days of deliberation to sway the six not-guilties over to the guilty side. This was not an obvious or simple case. In my opinion, this case dragged on for all those years, and it ended just weak and circumstantial because the original investigators had blinders on. It was obvious from the very beginning that Becky's body was treated differently from the other two victims, John and Vicky were both shot, they were both left in the house, and then the house was set on fire in an attempt to destroy evidence of the crime. But Becky's body was outside, not left in the house with the other two victims, almost put on display. She was left right out in the open, set ablaze in a wheelbarrow where it absolutely couldn't be missed. The initial investigators seemed to have determined right away that Becky was treated differently because she must have been the intended target. They hypothesized that John and Vicky must have been collateral damage, killed as witnesses. In their eyes, Becky was the key to solving this case. So that's where they focused. The investigators poked around a bit into John and Vicky's victimology, but they never followed up on anything. They were both described as friendly but homebodies. Vicky worked down in the valley at Macy's, and John was a handyman for hire. They didn't really have any social lives to speak of. These are some of the red flags that were discovered by police, but don't appear to have been taken seriously. John and Vicky were broke. They were never rolling in money, but in the month before the murders, their income dropped dramatically. They had missed a couple house payments, but they were in the process of refinancing their house, which likely explains that. But what investigators should always be looking for are Changes. What was different in the lives of the victims leading up to their murders? And in this case, suddenly, they were bringing in significantly less money and they were behind on their bills. And speaking of money, John's co-workers told investigators that he and Vicky were coming into a large sum of money. They believed it was coming from someone in Vicki's family. Police never tracked down what John was talking about and where this large sum of money might be coming from. They did, however, interview Vicky's ex-husband and Becky's father, Ron Friedley. Ron and Vicky had divorced many years prior, and as part of their divorce settlement, Vicky was awarded a portion of Ron's pension. Ron explained to investigators that he had retired a year prior to the murders, and he says that at that point, he bought Vicky out of the pension. He had paid her $10,000 up front, which we see in John and Vicky's bank records. And then he says that he paid her the remainder, he says $60,000, back in the fall of 2005. If that's true, then it would be hard to conceive of a motive for Ron. The problem is that nowhere in John and Vicki's financials do we see that transaction taking place. According to John's ex-wife, Ron was fighting Vicky in court so that he wouldn't have to make that payment. He was trying to get out of it. But she believed that the situation had been resolved... And John and Vicky were expecting that money soon, which would again align with John telling his co-workers that they were about to come into some money. But it doesn't align with Ron's story that he had already paid Vicky what he owed her a year prior. And then we hear from Tiffany Teasdale. She's Becky's sister, but not Ron's daughter. She was Vicki's child from a previous marriage. Tiffany told investigators that Ron had told her the same story that he had already settled the retirement money issue the year before. Ronna told her that the money was in an account somewhere in Vicki's name. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, I'm sure your hackles are up. As they always say, follow the money. Unfortunately, the Riverside County Sheriff's Department didn't. I can't tell you if Ron did or did not pay out the retirement money, Because there's nothing in the police file to indicate that the investigators ever even made an attempt to verify this claim i should also point out that the place ron retired from in 2005 was in fact the riverside county sheriff's department he was a retired cop retired from the very agency that was investigating these murders just a year before in fact one of his best friends was the lead investigator on the case for the first two weeks before someone decided that that was a conflict of interest and another investigator took over. I'll leave that for you to contemplate as I move on. The detectives working the case never verified Ron's story about the money, but what I can tell you is that I've looked up the probate settlement from when Tiffany was finally able to settle the estate a few years later, and there's no retirement money in that settlement. There's no real cash at all, just the house and insurance policy. There were a few other red flags that were documented and then forgotten about. The night of the murders was the last day of Vicky's two-week vacation from work. She had told co-workers when she left on vacation that she and John had planned to make a trip during her time off. But on the Friday before the crime, she stopped in to pick up her paycheck and said that they ended up not going anywhere. She was just home the whole time. And then there was Tiffany's statement to police. Tiffany lived a few hours away from her mom, and she says that Vicky, who rarely came to visit her had been insisting that she come spend the weekend at her house, the very same weekend when she was ultimately killed. Tiffany said that her mother seemed almost desperate to get away from home that weekend. She had planned the trip and then canceled at the last minute. What becomes very apparent when reading the case files is that the investigation into John and Vicky was just a horse and pony show. The detectives checked off boxes of interviewing people close to them, but when they were given information that should have warranted further investigation, they ignored it. And I believe that's because they had convinced themselves from the very beginning that Becky was the key to all of this. She must have been the intended target. They would find their killers in her circle of acquaintances. And because of that, they didn't take any basic steps of investigation. Detectives interviewed a few of the neighbors who were up at the scene that day after the murders, but they didn't go door-to-door. They didn't ask a single person if they saw any vehicles driving away from the crime scene. Now, in some places, that question may not be particularly fruitful, but in Pinion Pines, it's a very different story. John, Vicky, and Becky lived at the very back of the community. Alpine Drive marks the northern border of Pinion Pines, and their house was on the north side of the road. Behind the house was nothing but desert for about a half mile, and then mountains. South of them were homes scattered about on large lots, with football fields of distance between the houses and properties. This community had no municipal services, not even water. The older homes were connected to a private water system, and the rest survived on water tanks and trucked in H2O. People lived in Pinion Pines to be away from society. The residents were very private and many of them paranoid. The lots were surrounded by fences creating hundreds of feet of separation from the front doors and any human activity. On my first visit to Pinion Pines, I pulled into Tim Summerlee's driveway to speak to him. The first thing he told me was not to do that to any other house. He said pulling into someone's driveway up here is a good way to get yourself shot. The point is that there is no traffic in Pinion Pines. It's not on the way to anywhere. It's a dead end neighborhood full of recluses well off the beaten path. Neighbors mostly know each other only by the cars that they drive. I've been up there several times at nine and 10 o'clock at night and it is eerily calm and quiet. No cars, no people. The only sound you hear is the occasional howl of a coyote. In that neighborhood, Cars get noticed. And again, the police never asked a single person, not even the people that they did actually interview, if they saw any vehicles driving around near the crime scene that night. The paranoia runs deep in Pinion Pines. I can't speak to 2006, but I can tell you that today, almost every house has security cameras pointed towards the road. And some of them appear to be the type of cameras you'd see outside of convenience stores back in the 80s. No cameras were checked. No doors were knocked on. No one in this remote community was ever investigated as a suspect. Despite the fact that the police had been to that neighborhood for other 911 calls multiple times on that very same day. The detectives had tunnel vision. Becky. The answer must lie in Becky's circle. Robert Pape was Becky's ex-boyfriend, or one of her ex-boyfriends. They had dated for about a year and a half and had broken up about nine months before the murders. As I've already mentioned, he and his best friend Christian were ultimately convicted of these murders, but even they weren't properly investigated in the beginning. They both provided statements to police with verifiable alibis, but the investigators never bothered to verify them. And that's because their tunnel vision seems to have narrowed quickly from Becky's circle of friends to her best friend, Javier Garcia. For the first several months of the investigation, the lead investigator on the case was obsessed with Javier. He interviewed him multiple times, badgered him about taking a polygraph test over and over again, and questioned anyone and everyone who knew Javier about his relationship with Becky. Javier had told police that he and Becky were best friends, and the phone records seemed to confirm that. They talked constantly, hundreds of times a week, every day. They spent every waking minute together. In fact, Javier told police that he was on his way to Becky's house just an hour or two before she was killed when Becky then told him not to come. Now, I want to be clear that Javier's phone records appear to fully alibi him for the murders. But the lead investigator was like a dog on a bone, ignoring all other leads and focusing on Javier. He could not wrap his brain around the idea of a platonic friendship between two teens of the opposite sex. In almost every interview, he would ask if Javier was gay, sometimes even going so far as to lie to the interviewees and telling them that others had told him that Javier was gay. And then there was Javier's cousin, Jacob. He was Becky's most recent boyfriend, and she had broken up with him just a couple of days before the murders. There was also Jacob's roommate, Austin, who hated Becky, and reportedly had even gone to her work and got into an argument with her the day before Becky was killed. That was according to Javier. In reading the case file, it seems to me that the lead detective thought he smelled a rat with Javier. And that's where all of his attention went in those critical first few months. Ultimately, there was no case against Javier, but a single piece of evidence shifted the focus onto Robert and Christian. On the night of the murders, investigators on the scene had discovered a broken wheelbarrow track with a handful of footprints on and near it leading out into the desert behind the Friedley house. The track didn't connect all the way to the wheelbarrow where Becky's body was found burning, but it started about 25 feet away and the fact that she was in that wheelbarrow warranted a closer look at the track. The idea being, why would she be in a wheelbarrow unless someone was using it to move her body? The track meandered back into the desert for two or three hundred yards. There was nothing of note at the end of the track, but once the sun came up on Monday, one of the detectives started looking around behind it. About sixty feet away from the end of that track, he discovered a partially crumpled up business card... It was just laying there on the ground, 60 feet away from any tracks or footprints. The only sign of any activity near the card was a hole that had been dug up and filled back in, as though a tree or bush had been removed from the earth. In the summer of 2007, so almost a year later, in the summer of 2007, so almost a year later, the lead detective obtained results from DNA testing on the car. And according to the lab, Christian Smith's DNA was present. And Christian had told police almost a year earlier that one, he was with Robert at the time of the murders, and two, he had never been to Becky's house. And yet, here was a business card for pro-life ministries with his DNA on it. Now, you'd have a pretty difficult time coming up with a scenario where that card made it to that location during the commission of this crime, if you're implementing any sort of logic. But nonetheless, it was a lead, a lead that had a connection to Becky. She was found in a wheelbarrow. About 25 feet away from the wheelbarrow was a track. The track went back a couple football fields into the desert. And 60 feet away from that track, there was a business card containing the DNA of a guy who said he had never been to the property. Adding to that at the end of the wheelbarrow track was a shoe print that matched the make and model of the shoe that Becky was wearing when she was killed. The one shoe. The second shoe was missing. This was enough to turn the focus onto Robert and Christian, and a look at their phone records led investigators to believe they were on the right track. There was no cell service in Pinion Pines, and it just so happened that from 7.13 p.m. to 10.23 p.m., every call that came into Robert or Christian's phones went to voicemail because they weren't connected to any towers. That was right in the window of opportunity for the murders. Maybe they had just turned their phones off for a while, or maybe they were in another area with no cell reception, or maybe they had no service because they were at the crime scene. That was enough evidence to get a judge to sign off on a search warrant for both Robert and Christian's houses. The searches were executed a year after the murders in the fall of 2007 and produced nothing. No murder weapons, no bloody clothes, no shoes that matched the footprints, nothing useful at all. And with that, the lead detective, Gary LeClaire, suspended the investigation. The case was cold until 2014, when, with no new evidence at all, Robert and Christian were arrested. But that was short-lived, and the prosecutor dropped the charges before a trial. But then, two years later, a criminal informant came forward and told police that he had heard Christian confess to the murders. That was the smoking gun they had been looking for. Robert and Christian were then arrested again in 2016 and have been behind bars ever since. In the 10 years between the murders and their arrests, the two best friends lived very different lives. Robert's life was about as ordinary as you can imagine. He was married to the same girlfriend he had when he graduated high school and at the time of the murders. He went to work at a heating and air conditioning company and was perfectly happy just living life, going to work, and spending time with his wife and his friends. Christian, on the other hand, lived an extraordinary life. In 2008, he fulfilled his goal of enlisting in the military. He joined the Army and served as an elite Army Ranger. When he was arrested in 2016, he had served multiple tours overseas, earned two Purple Hearts, and almost lost his arm protecting a fellow soldier and he was awarded a Medal of Valor, one of the Army's most prestigious and respected awards. He was truly an American hero. Christian had also married his high school sweetheart and they had just had their first and only child before his world came crashing down. In 2018, after a six week trial and 10 days of deliberations, Robert and Christian were both convicted of murder and sent to prison for the rest of their lives. In this next segment, I'm going to break down the evidence that the state used to secure convictions against Robert and Christian. For those of you that have been listening for this whole season, you'll likely be screaming at your phones during this section because we've dissected every single one of these elements throughout the season. I'm aware of that, but here I'm just going to share what the jury heard as evidence. If you're new to the show or to the case, and even if you happen to be a family member of the victims and sat through the trial, I think this part is very important. It's important to understand both how Robert and Christian were convicted and also why the loved ones of the victims may have walked away from the trial believing that they had received justice. I'm not going to refute anything in this segment. I'm just going to give you the facts as they were presented to the jury. Everything revolved around 18-year-old Robert and Becky's relationship. As I mentioned earlier, Robert and Becky had broken up in January of 2006, about nine months before the murders. After the breakup, Robert started dating a girl named Sarah, who he later married. Becky was in and out of a handful of dating relationships during those nine months. In that time span, Robert and Becky would occasionally talk. They were still friendly, and four days before the murders, Robert called Becky seemingly out of the blue. Over the next few days, they had 26 points of contact on the phone and met in person once on Saturday, the day before the murders. According to both Robert and Christian, on that Saturday evening, Becky had stopped by Christian's house where the guys were hanging out. They chatted for a few minutes and Becky invited them to go up to her house in Pinion Pines on Sunday evening to go hiking. This is the first element of the state's case. Robert and Christian both told investigators that there was a plan, and I use the word plan in air quotes, to go hiking with Becky at her house, where the crime occurred, at the time the crime occurred. And I use the word plan loosely because both Robert and Christian say that they never had any intention of going on that hike. They say that they were noncommittal and that they were just humoring Becky when they said they might go. So through their own statements, the state was able to show that there was an intention for both of the defendants to be at the crime scene at the time of the murders. And next comes the phone records. The route to Pinion Pines takes Highway 74 south from the Coachella Valley up the mountains. It's usually about a 30-minute drive from the point where you would turn onto Highway 74 down in Palm Desert up to the crime scene. About halfway up that hill, cell service is lost completely. A look at Robert and Christian's phone records show that after Robert ignored a call and let it go to voicemail at 7.13 p.m., there was a dark period on both his and Christian's phones. That 713 call was from Becky and she was calling from her landline. And that call connected to a tower but wasn't answered. But 14 minutes later at 727, she tried again and that call went straight to voicemail and didn't connect to a tower. The state's expert explained that that could mean one of two things either the phone had been turned off or it was in an area where there was no cell service, an area like Pinion Pines. A handful of calls came into Robert and Christian's phones starting at 727 that did not connect to a tower. The first instance where the phones connected to the network again was at 1023 p.m. when Robert checked his voicemail. That means that the phones were either turned off or in an area with no service for nearly three hours. And those three hours covered the time of the murders. Remember, the first 911 calls about the fire came in at around 945 And in fact, the fire captain testified that the first call came directly to the station, not through 911, at 9.40 p.m. So with that information, the state was able to show that neither Robert or Christian's phones had cellular service at the time of the murders. And one place they could have been is at the crime scene during that time. The place where they had already explained they had planned to go hiking with Becky. The combination of cell phone records and Robert and Christian's police statements, according to the jurors who spoke about the trial afterwards, is what really sealed their fates. At trial, there was a stipulation between the state and the defense that the original investigators never pulled the full call detail reports from Verizon for Robert or Christian's phones, and that it was now too late to get that information over a decade later. The full call detail reports, also known as sector data, shows a lot more information than the basic records that the police did pull. It's all very complicated and broken down in detail in several episodes, including an episode with an expert who came in to explain what it all means. But in very basic terms, every cell tower has three antennas that point in different directions. Those are the sectors, and they are what you really need to have in order to determine location. The basic report might show you that you connected to a tower, but the sector data can show you which direction you were most likely positioned in from that tower. The other thing that the basic report won't show you are the handoffs. Very rarely do you connect to a cell tower and stay on it for the duration of a call, especially if you're driving, but even if you're standing still, particularly for incoming calls. As a quick example, let's say you call me on my cell phone. The network finds me through tower number one, so that's where my phone initially connects. But even though I am technically in range of tower number one, I'm actually much closer to tower number two. In that scenario, within a second or two of the first connection, the network now knows where I am, so the phone will then switch over to tower number two. Now, if you were looking at the full call detail report, you would see that the call started on tower one, but quickly switched over to tower two. So that's where I would be located, somewhere in the range of tower two. But in the basic report, it would only show the first connection. It would say that you called me and I was connected to Tower 1, which might lead you to believe I was closest to Tower 1, when in fact that's not true. That's the type of report the state had, just the basic report. And again, they stipulated, meaning they agreed on the record with the defense, that that's all they had. The full call detail reports were never obtained and are now unavailable. So, using the basic call records and Robert and Christian's story, the state was able to demonstrate to the jury that both defendants were being dishonest in their police interviews. They told police that after work, they both worked in a water park, that they both went to their respective homes. Christian's is in Cathedral City, which is in the north end of the valley, and Robert's is in Rancho Mirage, which is in the middle of the valley. They both went to their homes at about 6 o'clock after work. They spoke on the phone and decided to go out and try out a paintball gun that had been broken and repaired behind the James Workman Middle School that night. After that conversation, at 6.14 p.m., according to the call logs, Becky calls Robert from her landline. He says that on that call, Becky wanted him to come up and go hiking with her, and he says that he told her he wasn't going. And he also explained that she was pretty upset about him blowing her off. After that, the guys talked again. And Robert told Christian that he would like to go mess around with the paintball gun, but he has to go to church first. Robert's family were devout Catholics and insisted that Robert attend mass on Sundays. Since he had missed the morning mass due to work, his mother told him to try and find an evening mass at the Sacred Heart Church down in Palm Desert in the south end of the valley. And again, just to clarify, the series of events I'm explaining here are as according to Robert and Christian in their statements. I'm not saying these are facts. I'm saying this is what they said happened. So, Robert tells Christian he needs to go to church first, and Christian says that's fine, he'll just go with him to Mass, and then they can go mess with the paintball gun after. Geographically, again, Christian's house is in the north end of the valley, Robert's house is in the middle of the valley, and the Sacred Heart Church is in the south end of the valley, which also happens to be where Highway 74 connects, which heads to the crime scene. So Christian leaves his house and heads to Robert's house to pick him up to go to church. They say that they then headed south toward Sacred Heart, and Robert called 411 to get the phone number to the church so he could check the time of the mass. He says he got the number, and then he called the church. On that call, they told him that it was now too late. Mass was already over. In the meantime, Becky had been calling both Robert and Christian repeatedly, and they were ignoring those calls and sending them to voicemail. Once they discovered that it was too late for mass, they say that they then went to Christian's house and hung out and played video games for a while, and then went over to James Workman Middle School and tried out the paintball gun. The gun still wasn't working properly, so that trip didn't last very long. It was extended a few minutes because Christian misplaced his keys. There was an old couch in the field where they were messing around, and that's where he eventually found them. From there, they say they headed back to Robert's house, but made a stop at an A.M.P.M. gas station where Robert bought some chapstick for his cousin, and they put gas in the car. So that's the defendant's version of events. Becky calls about the hike. Robert says he's not going. Christian picks him up. They head south toward Sacred Heart. On the way there, they call the church and find out it's too late. So they head back up to Christian's house to play video games. Then they go to the school to paintball. They stop at a gas station. And Christian drops Robert off at around 10.30 p.m. Now, enter the phone records. Things start out okay for the defense. We see the 614 call from Becky and then several calls from her to the guy's cell phones that they ignore. Christian even said that he tried calling her back once, but no one answered, and that call also shows up on the log. We see the 411 call at 7 p.m., and the call to Sacred Heart at 7.01 p.m., so everything aligns. But here's the problem, and this is how the state made its case that after the call to church, Robert and Christian headed to the crime scene. It has to do with the geography of the pertinent locations and the cell towers that the calls connected to. So like I said, Robert's house is in the middle of the valley, and Tower 707 covers his house. That's the tower he was connected to when he talked to Christian, when he talked to Becky, when he called 411, and when he made the call to the church. The state presented that to mean that the two were not on their way to church when they called Sacred Heart, but instead, they were sitting at Robert's house when they made that call and found out that they had missed the service. But four minutes later, they connect to Tower 705 which is at the south end of the valley in Palm Desert, near the turnoff to Highway 74, the mountain road that heads to the crime scene. The narrative presented, and backed up by the cell records, was that the guys were lying. And not only were they lying, but they were headed in the direction of the crime scene after they found out there was no mass, and just before their phones went dark. Christian's house again was north of Robert's, So had they been at Robert's when they called the church, they should have went north to Christian's house, not south. And it gets worse. The last call that connected to a tower before the phones go dark connected to tower number 745. That tower is located about two miles down Highway 74 as it starts to climb the mountain. The state was able to show on a map that the guys were at or near Robert's house at 701 when they called the church. They then headed south They connected to a tower in the south end of the valley at 7.05 p.m. when Becky called Christian and at the same time their friend Sam had called Robert. He's the guy that gave Christian the paintball gun. At 7.06 p.m., Robert called Sam back and they talked for a few minutes, still connected to Tower 705 down south in the valley. Then at 7.09, Becky called Christian again, which he let go to voicemail just like the others. Then at 7.10, he calls her back but hung up on her before talking to anyone. The records show that the call connected for one second which he described as no one answering, but since it did connect for one second, it seems that as he was hanging up the phone is the exact second that someone picked up on the other end. Now, those two calls to Christian's phone connected into a tower way over on the east side of the valley, but the state was able to put on an expert who did some drive tests showing that that tower did have a little bit of spotty coverage on Highway 74, even though it was nearly eight miles away. And then, at 7.13 p.m., Robert ignores another call from Becky, which connects to that tower two miles down Highway 74. Point by point, the puzzle pieces fit together. They lied. They were not on their way to church when they called Sacred Heart. They were sitting at Robert's house. And they did not head north to Christian's house after that. Instead, they headed south, to Highway 74, and onto the crime scene, where their phones had no service. Once the prosecution showed that the defendants were headed south towards the crime scene and the lack of service indicates that they could have been there, now they had to put them on the scene. And that's where the business card comes in. Remember, Becky's body was found burning in a wheelbarrow. 25 feet away from it, there was a wheelbarrow tire track that led back into the desert for about 200 yards. Along that track were five footprints. Two that were made by a DVS brand shoe, two made by Vans, and at the end of the track was one partial print from a globe shoe the state put on an expert from the fbi who concluded that that globe print was made from the same make and model as the one shoe becky was wearing so now they can put becky out at the end of the wheelbarrow track and 60 feet away from that track further out into the desert was that pro-life ministry's business card and on that card was christian smith's fingerprint and dna the dots were connecting they planned the hike The lies, the phone calls, the cell tower locations, the lack of service, the body in the wheelbarrow, the wheelbarrow track, Becky's footprint, and the business card with Christian's print and DNA. It's circumstantial, but it makes sense. The state did have one more hoop that they needed to jump through. And that's the fact that Robert checked his voicemail at 10.23 p.m. connected to tower number 88. Tower 88 is located at the extreme north end of the valley, literally directly behind James Workman School where the guy said they were at at about that time. The question is, does that call rule them out as suspects? Any search on any mapping software will tell you that it's nearly an hour drive from the crime scene to James Workman Middle School, which would mean that Robert and Christian would have had to have left the scene by no later than 9.30 in order to be there to make that call and the state's own expert wasn't particularly helpful in this regard. They put on Dr. Elaine Pope, a forensic anthropologist who specializes in burning bodies. She was asked to determine the earliest time that Becky's body could have been lit on fire. The reason being that it is the only way to determine the earliest time that the killers could have left the scene. We have an exact timestamp from the dispatch log as to when the fire department arrived on the scene and when they discovered Becky's burning body. That happened at 10.14 p.m., and at that point the captain ordered his crew to extinguish the body, which would take two minutes at a minimum. So we know that Becky's body was extinguished at or right around 10.16 p.m. Dr. Pope then analyzed the autopsy photos of the remains, conducted test burns, and used her years of expertise analyzing burned bodies to determine that Becky's body burned for no more than 20 minutes which would mean that the killers ignited her body no earlier than 9.56 p.m. or 27 minutes before Robert made a call on Tower 88, which is a 52-minute drive away. So I'm sure you're saying to yourself, that's not possible. And you're right. But through further questioning by the prosecutor, Dr. Pope conceded that at the very most, she could extend that range of time to 30 minutes of burning. That's better, but it still only leaves 37 minutes for Robert to get back to that tower on the north side of the valley. And again, the average drive time you'll see on Google or Apple Maps or even MapQuest is 52 minutes. This was a problem for the state, and they knew it. Enter Investigator Ryan Bodmer. Bodmer solved this problem by conducting several drive tests. It took at least 10 attempts to get to the result that they were looking for, but ultimately he testified that he was able to leave the crime scene and drive all the way to Christian's house in the range of Tower 88 in 38 minutes, shaving 14 minutes off the normal drive time. That's 38 minutes to get through three miles of bumpy, ruddy dirt roads and pinion Pines. Those roads were in such bad shape, by the way, that the fire trucks actually got stuck on their way to the crime scene then down the two-lane Highway 74 with its many tight switchbacks as you descend the mountain, then all the way up Highway 111 with a stoplight at almost every block. All of that in 38 minutes, proving to the jury that it is possible. Robert and Christian could have been at the crime scene at 946, which is the absolute earliest that the body could have been lit on fire, and then back up at the north end of the valley by 1023. Lastly, we have Jeremy Witt. Ultimately, Witt testified that a year after the murders, he was working with Christian at the water park when he noticed Christian staring up into the mountains. He went over to talk to Smith, and Christian said something went wrong, and we had to torch the place. Now, that may sound pretty damning, but honestly, I don't think anyone believed his story. Aside from being completely nonsensical, the events leading up to that testimony were ridiculous. To sum it up briefly, Witt had called the sheriff's department anonymously years after the murders and said that he had overheard Christian's girlfriend talking to another friend about the search that was done on their house back in 2007. But then, a few years later, in 2016, investigator Bodmer tracks Witt down, and after some unrecorded interview, they go on the record, and the story completely changes from overhearing the girlfriend talking about a search to now Christian confessed directly to him. And Witt didn't even testify at the trial. His testimony from another proceeding was read in by someone else, so he didn't have to face any cross-examination. So while Witt's testimony was definitely a part of the state's case, I don't think anyone bought it. In fact, it was so ridiculous that the defense insisted in their closing that Witt's testimony was critical to the state's case. They actually wanted the jury to think that Witt's testimony was important because they knew that no one believed it. And that's it. That's how the state proved their case. While it was entirely circumstantial, the way it was all laid out at least seemed to make perfect sense. It took 10 days of deliberation, but ultimately 12 jurors all agreed, Robert and Christian were guilty.
2: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.
1: based on the case as i just described it it's easy to see why anyone sitting through that trial would believe that justice was served but sadly if you were there and you saw and heard and believed the state's case you got played manipulated and taken advantage of by the state in this final segment i'm going to tell you what the jury didn't get to hear what was missed by everyone, including the defense, and how I know that Robert Pape and Christian Smith are innocent, and worse yet, Becky, John, and Vicky's killers are still out there. I'll walk through the state's case in the same order that I just presented it to you, adding in the things that the jury never got to hear. First and foremost, there absolutely was a discussion of a hike and Robert and Christian's phones absolutely were not connected to Towers during the murders. Some people find those facts hard to get past, but it's important to understand that if there weren't for odd coincidences and circumstances, there would be no wrongful convictions. There's always a reason that innocent people become suspects. Adan Sayed let Jay Wilds borrow his car. Ed Eight snuck out in his grandma's car and lied about it. The West Memphis PD misread turtle bites for satanic ritual markings. Sandy Melgar had a seizure and can't remember anything. Pablo Velez sold his car, but the new owner didn't do the paperwork, so it still came back as registered to him. The list goes on and on. There's always a coincidence. But what matters is proof. Let's look at the planned hike. Here we're just going to apply some basic logic. The state claims that Robert and Christian planned to go on the hike, went on the hike, And then to quote their witness, Jeremy Witt, something went wrong. Well, consider this. If when Robert got off the phone with Becky at 614, he was planning to go to her house, why then did he proceed to ignore all of her calls after that? If Becky was expecting him and he was on his way, why not answer the phone? And why call the church? Which ties right back into the lack of cell service. Becky called him and Christian six times between 7 and 7.27 p.m., and they never answered the phone. Logic just might lead you to believe that they would turn their phones off so she'd stop calling, or at least so they didn't have to hear it anymore. In Robert's interview, he told investigators that the reason he decided not to go on the hike was because Becky had told him that another guy would be there. This was at 6.14 p.m. We know that call took place as the only time they actually spoke based on the call records. We then hear from Javier that at that point in time, he was heading up the hill and he was going to Becky's. So we know that's true. What Robert said is true. There was going to be another guy there. The other guy was Javier. But then, later, in the midst of all the unanswered calls to Robert, Becky talks to Javier again, but now she tells him not to come because it would be awkward with Robert being there. And he says that she told him that Robert was on his way. Now compare that to the evidence. Robert says that he told Becky he wasn't coming because another guy would be there. Then Becky tells Javier not to come because it would be awkward if he was there when Robert came. And then Becky starts calling Robert repeatedly. Now apply some logic. If she knew Robert was coming, then why was she so desperately trying to get a hold of him after telling Javier not to come? Could it be that she was trying to tell him that the other guy, in fact, would not be there, so he should go ahead and come up anyway? Fortunately, we'll never know because Robert never answered those phone calls, which means he never knew that Javier wouldn't be there. Now let's look at that cell tower location data, and this is a big one. Remember that stipulation I told you about? The one where the state said that they never pulled the full call detail report? That was an absolute, bald-faced lie. The truth is that they did pull Robert Sector data. They had it explained to them by the Verizon Court Compliance Officer, and it was copied to the lead investigator, and he even referenced it in the search warrant back in 2007. They had it the whole time, and they knew they had it. So you might be asking yourself, why would the state say they never pulled this data when they absolutely had it in their possession? And the answer is, because it destroys their entire narrative. Remember I told you that with these full reports, you can not only see the tower that the call started on, but you can also see the tower that the call ended on. So now let's look at that call to Sacred Heart at 701. The state used the incomplete basic report to show that Robert was at his house connected to Tower 707 when he made that call. And it wasn't until after he found out that he had missed mass that he and Christian then headed south towards the crime scene, which sounds pretty damning. What they didn't want the jury to see was that that call began on Tower 707, but it ended on Tower 705, the one down in the south end of the valley, the one Down by Sacred Heart Church. See, the full report shows that Robert and Christian were exactly where they said they were, doing exactly what they said they were doing. They were hitting towers in the south end of the valley because they were in the south end of the valley when they called the church and found out it was too late. Then there's the big smoking gun. The last connection that either phone made was on Tower 745 again, that's the tower located a couple miles down Highway 74. That's the connection they used to show the jury that Robert and Christian were on their way to the crime scene, headed up the mountain at 7.13 p.m. But it's a lie. The final connection was not on Tower 745. The final connection on that call ended on the east-southeast antenna of Tower 705. For reference, Tower 705 is located northeast of the turn onto Highway 74. So you have a tower that's already located to the east of where the state says the defendants turned to go to the crime scene. They were coming from the west. And that final call ended up on an east-southeast-facing sector from that tower, which means they didn't turn onto Highway 74. They drove right past it, almost like they were headed to Sacred Heart, realized it was too late and continued on to go back to Christian's house just like they said they did. This flimsy case was built on the illusion that the cell towers proved that Robert and Christian were headed towards the crime scene. And that is what I meant by you were played. You were manipulated. The state knew that wasn't true. And instead of considering the fact that they might just have the wrong guys they convinced the defense that they didn't have this evidence that was sitting in their discovery file the entire time. The jury also wasn't aware that there was a pretrial ruling that didn't allow the defense to even mention anything that could be construed as suggesting that there was an alternate suspect. So when the jury is deliberating and possibly thinking, well, if not them, then who? which is a common question asked by jurors. They had no idea that it wasn't that there was no other who. They just weren't allowed to hear about it. And I don't just mean the defense couldn't accuse anyone else. I mean they couldn't even present anything that might imply that someone else could be the culprit. As an example, the fire captain reported and testified to the fact that on their way to the crime scene that night, the fire trucks were almost run off the road by a red truck driving away from the crime scene. Later in the trial, during Javier Garcia's testimony, the defense simply asked him if the truck that he rode into the crime scene the day after the murders was red. It was, by the way. He rode to the scene with his friend Nick, and it's clearly stated in the recording of Javier's interview that Nick was driving a red truck. But the second the defense asked Javier if Nick was driving a red truck, the prosecutor objected, which led to a bench conference where the judge would not allow that line of questioning because it would be implying an alternate suspect. The jury and the families of the victims were only allowed to hear evidence that pointed towards Robert and Christian and nothing else, making it seem like all of the evidence in existence pointed at Robert and Christian. Let me give you another example. The state hammered away at the fact that Robert and Christian's phones had no service at the time of the murders. It was repeated over and over again. But what the defense wasn't allowed to counter with is the fact that Becky's most recent ex-boyfriend, Jacob, the one she had broken up with just days before his phone was also mysteriously out of service during the murders as well. The jury wasn't allowed to hear that he repeatedly lied in his interviews about everything from the fact that Becky had broken up with him at all to his whereabouts for the days leading up to the murders. And that's not to say that I think Jacob is the guilty party. The point is that a teenager's cell phone being shut off, out of battery, or not connected to a tower in 2006 was not out of the ordinary. And that was a hard point to make clear to a 2018 jury. By then, smartphones had been around for over a decade, and phones had stronger batteries and were dinging every 10 seconds with text messages, emails, Facebook notifications, Snapchats. But in 2006, some carriers were still charging by the minute. Batteries didn't last, there were no smartphones, and texting was still new and not fully adopted like it is now. But all the jury heard was that the defendants were headed towards the crime scene before the murders, and then their phones went dark. And the sad part is that if you take a look at Robert and Christian's phone records, you'd see that wasn't an anomaly at all. Most days, their phones had periods where they were missing calls and not connected to any towers. There was nothing odd or out of the ordinary about that Sunday night. And for anyone thinking objectively, it makes perfect sense that they would turn their phones off after blowing Becky off and ignoring her calls. The state also made the point that in Robert's police interview on the day after the murders, he displayed guilty knowledge of the crime that only the killer could know. Namely, he said that there was a body found in a wheelbarrow. The prosecution pushed the idea that no one could have known about that because they hadn't released that information to the public at that point. And that is complete nonsense. On the morning after the murders, Javier went up to the crime scene and hung out with all of the neighbors for hours, including Tim Summerly, the first person on scene, who discovered Becky's body in the wheelbarrow. In the police file, we heard from several of the neighbors that were all talking about the body in the wheelbarrow. Everyone up at that scene knew that detail. And furthermore, Javier's father happened to be the district attorney's homicide investigator and had all of those details. Javier even slipped up and said in one of his interviews that his father shared information about the scene with him that day. And Javier also said that he had called and talked to Robert on the phone multiple times that day, which is confirmed in the phone records. He kept calling Robert back every time he got more information. In Robert's interview, he told police that Javier had told him that there were three bodies found, two inside the house that had been burned so badly that the investigators couldn't even identify the sex of the victims, and that there was a 20-ish-year-old female found burning in a wheelbarrow. Now, first of all, none of that is guilty knowledge of the crime that information is not anything that the killers would know. The actual offenders would have no way of knowing what condition the bodies inside the house would be in when they were found the next day. Only someone connected to the investigation would know that. Someone like Javier's dad. The problem is that Javier's dad was not supposed to share those kind of details with his son, and Javier knew that. So it appears that in an attempt to protect his father... Javi lied and said that he didn't know anything about the body in the wheelbarrow, which inadvertently left Robert hung out to dry. Now, I can't say for sure why Javier lied, but I can say with certainty that he did lie. I know that because every single one of Javier's friends told police in their interviews that Javier had told them about the body in the wheelbarrow. Now, Javier says that he didn't know about the body in the wheelbarrow until the 21st, four days after the murders, when Becky's sister Tiffany told him about it. And the state used that statement to tell the jury that it would have been impossible for Javier to have told Robert about it on the 18th because Javier didn't even know about it until three days later. But what the jury didn't hear was that Jacob also told police about the body in the wheelbarrow before the meeting with Tiffany took place. And where did he say he got that information? You guessed it from Javier, before Javier met with Tiffany. Now let's talk about that business card, the only piece of physical evidence tying the defendants to the crime. Yes, Christian's DNA is on the card. Now the fingerprint I had some issues with, like the fact that three analysts determined that the print didn't belong to him, and then years later another one says that it did, but that's neither here nor there. Let's just assume that Christian did touch the card. What does that mean? Does it mean he participated in a triple homicide and arson? No, not at all. First, logic. Business cards are designed to be handed to people, and then the people walk away with them. Finding a card in any place with someone's fingerprint on it does not in any way mean that whoever left the print had ever been to that location. This card in particular contained other DNA profiles and fingerprints that were never identified. It had been passed around. So to begin with, the card in no way proves that Christian was out there in that desert, ever. But let's look at the facts surrounding the card. First, its location. It was found in the desert over 200 yards away from the crime scene. Furthermore, it was found 60 feet to the north of any human activity, according to the investigator that found it. Meaning, after he found the end of the wheelbarrow track and the last footprint, 60 feet north of there is the business card. The reason that's important is because of the wind direction. The crime occurred between 8 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. on Sunday night, approximately. The card was found the next morning. During that window of time, from the time that the card could have been dropped during the murders and when it was found, the wind was blowing from north to south. Think about that. The card was found 60 feet upwind of any human activity believed to be a part of this crime. How did it get there? The answer is, it couldn't have. It had to have already been there before the murders. Now let's look at the science involved. I had a DNA expert come on the show to examine the analysis of Christian's DNA on the card. The first thing she noticed was that the DNA was degraded, as if it had been outside exposed to the elements for a long time. Then we went and read the testimony of the state's own DNA expert. And what did he say? On the record, at trial. He testified that the degradation of Christian's DNA on the business card looks like what you would expect to see if it had been outside, exposed to the elements, for a year or more. And there's more. Becky's ex-boyfriend Jacob told police that he had never been to the house before. And that was because Becky didn't want him there because her room was a mess. But just before the murders, she told him that she had cleaned up her room so he could come up to the house. This is before they broke up. So what was it in her room that she didn't want her boyfriend to see? Well, I think we find the answer through Becky's sister Tiffany. In one of her police interviews, she tells investigators that she noticed in a news story about the case that as the news crew was filming around the scene, she saw a picture of Robert laying on the ground out by the dumpster, which sure sounds like Becky wanted to get rid of anything connected to her ex, Robert, before her current boyfriend, Jacob, came to visit. So perhaps that's why an old business card from an organization that Robert's mother volunteered for ended up outside before the murders. Now, what about the tire track? First of all, none of the footprints were identified as matching any of Robert or Christian's shoes. Secondly, on a path that should have had over a thousand footprints had they been made just hours before these murders, the detectives found and documented five. Five footprints. So how did those prints get there? Another witness the jury never heard from was neighbor Sharon Coleman, who told police that in the week before the murders, when Vicky was on vacation... She ran into John and Vicky walking around back behind the house, back where the track and footprints were found. She also said she saw Becky and Javier out walking. So suddenly, it doesn't seem quite so damning to find Becky's footprint and a couple of skater shoe footprints back there. Because we know, the victims had just been walking around back there. But what about the wheelbarrow track? When you look at the scene as a whole, it's obvious what the wheelbarrow was used for. Just a few feet away from where the business card was found, like two steps away, was that hole in the ground that I talked about earlier. When you look at the crime scene photos, it's more than obvious that a tree was dug out of that hole. You can see the roots sticking out of the ground. Then, if you jump back to the area where the wheelbarrow was found, what do you see? A freshly planted tree with stakes to hold it up to keep the tree straight while the roots take hold. And the wheelbarrow itself had caked on dirt on the inside sidewalls clumps that never would have been still hanging on if the wheelbarrow had been pushed 200 yards through bumpy terrain with a body in it. And that's not all. Remember I told you that the wheelbarrow track began 25 feet away from the actual wheelbarrow? Between the track and the wheelbarrow was fresh, loose dirt. The kind of dirt that would have held tracks if the wheelbarrow containing a 150-pound body in it had just been pushed over it. But there is no track there. No tire track. No footprints. And then there's the track itself. If you go to our website and look at the photos, it's incredibly obvious why the tracks are intermittent or broken, and why there are only five footprints when there should be a thousand. And that's because the wheelbarrow wasn't used to transport Becky's body hours before. It was used to transport a tree weeks before. The last time it had rained in Pinion Pines was two weeks before the murders, at the beginning of Vicky's vacation. Two weeks before, there was a massive storm in Pinion, and storms like that in the high desert leave washout areas and trenches. The desert isn't made to absorb water, so the high areas dry out quickly and the low spots take on the water. When you look at the crime scene photos, you'll see that the few footprints that were found, in the spots where you can actually see a wheelbarrow track, were made when the ground was wet. Look closely at the investigators' footprints in those same photos. They look like what you would expect when someone's walking in sand just an hour or two before the pictures were taken. The foot makes an impression and the sand fills back in the hole as your foot leaves the ground. But the tire track and the footprints in question are clean. You can even make out the tread pattern and the word vans in the print. The edges are hard and clean and not filled in by sand. They were obviously made when the ground was wet and then they dried hardened. There are only a handful of them, and the wheel track is intermittent because the only part of the trail that stayed preserved was the part where the wheelbarrow was pushed through the low, wet areas. The rest of the trail had blown over in the dry sand. The track that the state insisted was connected to this crime was old. It had been made shortly after a rain, and at the time of the murders, it hadn't rained in Pinion Pines for two weeks. Christian's DNA on that card is irrelevant. He likely touched the card at some point, but based on the degradation, it was long before this crime. Just think about how things would have had to have transpired in order for the card to have any connection to these murders. Why was the house burned down? Why do people burn houses down after murders? They do it because they want to conceal the fact that a crime occurred at all. The hope is that the investigators will think it was just a tragic accident, a house fire. So why then would the killers take the time and effort to burn the house down to conceal the murders of John and Vicki, and then leave Becky outside burning, ensuring that everyone would know that a crime occurred? The answer is because Becky was never part of the plan. She was a surprise. She was likely hiding in the house when John and Vicki were killed and was forced outside by the fire. We know that the house fire was burning well before Becky's body was ignited. According to Dr. Pope, she was lit on fire after the fire department had already been called for the house fire, while neighbors were on their way to the scene. It was done quickly and in a panic. According to the state, Robert and Christian would have been hiking way out in the desert, in the pitch black darkness with Becky, when for some reason they killed her, without any sign of a struggle out there. No hair, no blood, no weapons, not even the shoe that Becky's missing. No marks on the ground, nothing. Then they went back to the house and got a wheelbarrow, then went back out to her body without leaving a single track, by the way. That's right, they miracled themselves back out there. There are only tracks coming in, none going out. And somehow they find the body again in the pitch black, they put her in the wheelbarrow and push her back up, not to the house, but instead stop 70 feet away next to the newly planted tree. Then they retrieve the shotgun and 40 caliber pistol that they just happened to have in their car. They go inside and shoot Vicki point blank in the head and John in the chest. Go out to the garage and grab some gas cans, light the house on fire. Then go back out to Becky's body in the wheelbarrow and pour some gas on her and light her on fire. And then immediately jump in their car and drive away. Remember, they only have 37 minutes to get back to Christian's house. They did all that without leaving any fingerprints or DNA on anything that was actually connected to the murders. Nothing on the wheelbarrow handles, nothing on Becky's legs or feet, which didn't burn, nothing on the gas can, nothing at all. That theory is absolutely ridiculous. The only reason that makes any kind of sense for Becky not being found inside the house with the other victims is because she wasn't discovered until after the house was already lit on fire. She tried to run away, and the killers caught her and killed her in the backyard. The wheelbarrow was right there. The killers had no time. They could see headlights coming at this point. So they quickly doused her with accelerant and lit her on fire to destroy whatever DNA they'd left on her, and they fled on foot. But they didn't get all the DNA. DNA analysis showed that there were two unknown male contributors— Two men that left their DNA on Becky's sock. The prosecution explained this DNA away at trial by saying that it could have come from anyone who had been to Becky's house in the past. Javier, John, other friends, Ron Friedley, her dad. They named all those people. Those people could have shed skin cells and then Becky just picked them up on her socks while she was walking around. But what the jury didn't hear was that every single one of the people that the state named had already been compared to the DNA, and they were all excluded. It didn't belong to Robert, Christian, John, Becky's dad Ron, Javier, or anyone else that had been to the house. If you want to know who murdered John, Vicky, and Becky, the answer's right there. They left their DNA on Becky's ankles when they picked her up put her in that wheelbarrow. Now let's look at the list of things the state should have had to prove in order to get these convictions. They should have had to prove that Robert or Christian at least had access to a 40 caliber pistol and a 12 gauge shotgun. But they didn't. Neither of them owned a pistol, and no evidence was presented proving that they had access to one. The best they could do is to have one of their old friends come on the stand and say he thought he remembered that Robert owned a Glock back in 2006, 12 years prior. That was obviously incorrect because he had been interviewed in 2007 when he clearly said that neither of them owned a pistol. And again, guess who did that interview? Ryan Bodmer. Now, Christian did own a shotgun, but his father had it in his possession at a different house at the time of the murders. The state did not and could not put the murder weapons in the defendant's hands. In order for the 37-minute timeline between the fire being started and the 1023 voicemail check to be possible, Robert and Christian would have had to have fled in their car literally the very second Becky's body was lit on fire. And that's assuming that we're working with the extreme outside range of the time provided by Dr. Pope. If her actual estimate is accurate, it would be impossible even by the state standards to make that drive. And then on the other end, we have to assume that the very moment they had passed all those other cell phone towers and the very moment they came into range of Tower 88, that's right when Robert turned his phone on and checked voicemail. But if we're working with that 30 minutes and Investigator Bodmer's 38-minute drive test can be trusted, then they had to leave like a bat out of hell immediately after lighting Becky's body in a car. Therefore, the state should have to prove that someone anyone left the scene in a car that night. They didn't. No one. I repeat, no one saw a car leaving the scene on the night of the murders. Remember, this is the furthest road to the north of this silently calm community with no street lights on a moonless night. According to the fire captain, the neighbors had seen the house burning and were making their way to the crime scene by 9.40 p.m. Becky's body wasn't ignited until 9.46 p.m. at the earliest. There were Dozens of eyes on that house when the killers left the scene. And the state provided zero evidence that any car drove away from that scene at all on the night of the murders. The most important thing that needs to be said before I conclude. It doesn't matter if it bothers you that even the state couldn't come up with a motive for Robert and Christian to have committed these crimes. And even if you're still convinced that the business card is a smoking gun, it doesn't matter if you believe everything the state said, even the parts we know are lies. The 10.23 p.m. voicemail call connected to Tower Number 88 tells you everything you need to know. First of all, let's look at the technical proofs offered at trial. The state was able to convince the jury that the defendants could have lit the fire at 9.46 p.m and still made it back to the north end of the valley in 38 minutes based on Investigator Bodmer's drive test. But that drive test was based on the basic cell phone data report, the one without sectors listed. His drive test is completely invalidated now that we have the full sector data. The location where Bodmer drove to was the furthest point where a phone could connect to Tower 88, Sector 2. But now we know that that voicemail call was actually connected to Sector 1—not the antenna that covered the route Bodmer drove, but the antenna that points right at James Workman Middle School, which is exactly where Robert and Christian said they were at the time. The state put on evidence showing that it was possible to drive to a place that is completely irrelevant, because we know from the sector data that that's not where the phone was located at the time. Now let's look logically at the drive. From the crime scene to the Tower 88 coverage area is a 52 minute drive by anyone's standards. That should have immediately ruled Pape and Smith out as suspects, period. It's just impossible to be on Alpine Drive on top of the mountain lighting a fire at 946 and then be at James Workman School at 1023. But the drive test, you say. Well, let's look at that drive test. Let's even assume that Bodmer went to the right place, which he didn't. He proved that a law enforcement officer with zero risk of being pulled over, who has years of professional high-speed driving training, and a vehicle made for this type of driving can cut 52 minutes down to 38 minutes. The defendants were in Christian's dad's car that night. Christian, 17-year-old Christian with one year of driving experience, was driving an Acura with about four inches of ground clearance. If Christian was there that night, it would have been his very first ever trip to Becky's house in a dirt road community where witnesses told police they would get lost even if they had been there before. The roads were rutted badly from the storm two weeks prior. Remember, the fire truck got stuck that night. So we're supposed to believe that a kid with a year of experience behind the wheel, in a car with hardly any ground clearance, in a dark, street-lightless neighborhood drove down the mountain road switchbacks and did all of that in the exact same amount of time as Bodmer did. And let's not forget that it took Bodmer at least 10 attempts to make it in the time allowed. And the fact that that time allowed assumes that when Dr. Pope said that Becky's body had been burning for no more than 20 minutes and then she bumped it to 30, that we're at the extreme end 30 minutes. If it's 29 minutes, 28, 25 or her original determination of 20, then none of this even matters. But if we go all the way to 30 minutes, after a minimum of 10 attempts, Bodmer was finally barely able to make the time work, and we're supposed to believe that Christian did it on his very first try. Do you believe that? I mean, do you actually seriously believe that that's possible? If the answer to that question is yes, and I'm sorry, but you are simply not being honest with yourself. It is definitely not possible and even if it was how in the hell did they manage to peel out of that driveway without a single person seeing them how the truth is that the state suppressed the cell phone evidence that would have destroyed this already pathetically weak case legally speaking there is zero not one shred of evidence that Robert and Christian were not just exactly where they said they were that night. Practically speaking, the actual cell phone data fully supports every word of their interviews with police. There is not a single shred of evidence that Robert Pape or Christian Smith ever left the Coachella Valley that night. But there is evidence of exactly who did commit this horrific crime. The killers left their DNA right there on Becky's body. Those are your killers. Robert Pape and Christian Smith are innocent. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondering. Edited by Kelly Barons Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInAsong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigation. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at Truth Pod, And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at Bob Rough Truth. And don't forget that we always have our 24 7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
2: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms
1: apply. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up.